Chapter 13 Invasion Lisa Duquesne was outside the house, staring off into nowhere in particular, but reflecting on where she had been several months ago, on a cruise with her husband, hoping to strengthen her marriage. Now they were on the front lines of a spiritual battle between light and dark forces. Never had she imagined how her new faith would have taken her to where she was today. She shivered as the early afternoon wind whipped past her. Looking back at the house, she thanked God for helping her family stay together under such adversity. It must have been extremely difficult for Brad and Nicole to be uprooted and shuffled around from place to place after living such stable lives. Everyone pitched in the best they could to try to bring some normalcy, but she knew the kids missed their old lives, going to school, meeting with their friends, and all other social activities. At times, it was too much for her to handle as she doubted her ability to mother her children through something none of them were prepared to do. Looking away from the house, she decided to take a short walk to the fence surrounding the complex. With each step, she labored over the current situation of their location being possibly compromised and their decision to stay instead of running. This is it, she said slowly as each word seemed to have escaped with apprehension from her lips. The running, the struggle, was coming to a point, one way or another, it was going to be resolved. Would they finally be liberated from their tormentors, with Pouchard's help, or would they be caught and stopped? Was God happy with what they'd done so far, by spreading the knowledge they had? Would he take them home? Would their deaths be painful or quick? Tears began to flow from Lisa's eyes. With heavy hand, she wiped them away just as quickly. It was a hard journey, but she knew it paled in comparison to what Sean's grandfather, Sir Goffrey Fairchild, had gone through. No matter what happens, she reminded herself, God will always be in control. When her eyes cleared, she looked up into the sky and prayed for strength. As soon as she finished praying, she focused on a small dot in the sky that continued to grow as it came closer. Within seconds, she realized it was a helicopter heading directly for the complex. She had never seen anything coming so close before and decided to return to the house. When the helicopter flew directly over her and headed toward Bouchard's residence, Fear began to well up within her. Fearing that this was the beginning of the inevitable confrontation, she sprinted back home. Sean was waiting for her at the door when she returned. She could see the repressed fear in his face and knew something wasn't right. Lisa, hurry up, he shouted. Sean. When she reached the door, he held onto her, closed the door, and bolted it shut. Got a call from security to stay inside and not to do anything. What's going on? She managed to ask while gasping to catch her breath. Is it them? Sean shook his head. I don't know. I only know that whoever is in the helicopter wasn't expected. I don't like this, at Lisa. Tears flowing from her eyes again. I don't like it. Sean held her close. I know, he said. Nicole and Brad appeared from their rooms, drawn by the commotion. What's going on? Asked Brad. Both mother and father looked at their children. Their parents' faces said it all as brother and sister grasped each other's hand, not knowing what else to do. As they flew over the complex, one of the Canadian agents took a picture of a woman running, obviously in response to their unexpected visit. He then proceeded to take pictures of several buildings, the scrambling security armed with automatic rifles, and then Matthew Bouchard's residence. With his instincts telling him that the time for action was swiftly approaching, he put the camera away and looked at the female agent in charge. Keiko was motioning for the pilot to land the helicopter as close as he could to the front door of Bouchard's home. 
When they landed and the engines slowly turned down, they were swarmed by security with guns pointed directly at them. As planned before their arrival, the Canadian agents showed their identification before exiting and spoke calmly to the shouting security force. After a few minutes, the tension abated to a more manageable level where calmer heads prevailed. Keiko and Brooke watched from inside the helicopter as the Canadian agents talked to several head security officers, who relayed the information on their headsets to someone else and waited for a response. Now that the lines of communication had been established, Keiko nudged Brooke and the two exited the helicopter. They both presented identification to heads of security and waited patiently for a response from their unseen supervisors. Keiko's expression was that of a person who wasn't going away until she got what she came for. Brooke scanned each face, primed and ready to whip out her pistol to protect Keiko against anyone who decided to do something stupid. After several long minutes, Bouchard's door opened. Keiko crossed her arms over her chest when she saw yet another head of security coming out to resolve the situation instead of Bouchard. She figured Bouchard was stalling and probably making phone calls to his contacts trying to get a handle on the unexpected visit. The head of security stopped right in front of Keiko. You're trespassing and outside your jurisdiction. I can't begin to tell you how many laws you and your government just broke, he said to Keiko. How long will it take before Bouchard realizes he has to talk to us, said Keiko calmly, ignoring the accusations from the head security officer. Likewise, ignoring her response, the man continued. The United States has no business here even with a couple of agents from our country. You. Who are you? Asked Keiko, leaning closer to the man. The longer we waste time here, the closer we get to the group you're so afraid of making an appearance. So tell me, who would you rather be talking to right now? Me or them? The head security officer took a step back, surprised by Keiko's acknowledgement of their high-priority predicament. He was about to respond when he paused to listen to someone in his earpiece. Yes. Right. Okay. Um, what a partner are you from again? The man asked Keiko. Keiko remained silent. I said. I know what you said, said Keiko. I don't talk to lackeys. If your boss wants answers, he has to talk to me face to face. The head security officer placed his finger on the earpiece. One second, please, he said to Keiko before walking back through the door. A few minutes later, the door reopened, and the same security guard motioned for Keiko and her crew to enter. Anne-Marie locked the front door and rushed upstairs, where Julie was still feverishly working on her computers. For a moment, Anne-Marie stood there wondering whether to disturb her friend who looked totally consumed in her work. Before she could decide what action to take, Julie spoke without once looking away from her computer monitors. Is it them? she asked. Anne-Marie lifted her shoulders. I have no idea. I was told to stay put and to be quiet, and I have no idea how Sean and the others are doing. Julie's fingers moved blindingly fast over the keyboard. I think it's time for you to pray. What about you? said Anne-Marie, cocking her head. I have to finish this. It's too important. And prayer isn't? Anne-Marie responded. Julie glanced at Anne-Marie. Of course it is, but this has to be finished. Anne-Marie tried to figure out what Julie was doing, but had no clue about computer code. What are you doing? I'll tell you later. Now, can you please pray? Julie pleaded. Kenko, Brooke, and their Canadian counterparts followed the security guard into the residence until they came to a closed door. The guard turned around 
gave the group one last look, and then opened the door. When they entered the room, there were at least five guards, standing around Matthew Gouchard, who sat comfortably in a very expensive-looking leather lounge chair. There weren't enough chairs for Keiko and her group to sit, so they remained standing several feet away from Bouchard. Assistant Director Keiko Yumeko Carter and Supervisor Brooke C. Coley, he said, ignoring the Canadian agents and acknowledging those truly in charge of this intrusion. Normally I would say welcome to my guests, but since you were not invited, I'll be blunt. What do you want? Keiko tried to measure the man and immediately gathered he was not one to be either manipulated or tactically guided into a corner. He was intelligent enough to see through and rouse, and would without hesitation respond ruthlessly with no chance of further dialogue. Keiko nodded to Brooke, catching her off guard for a second. Mr. Bouchard, said Brooke, our department is a newly created prototype unit whose sole purpose is to identify, quantify, and respond to possible terrorist activities utilizing advanced and undefined approaches threatening global security. We are a result of the previous global terrorist alert that engulfed the world some time ago, and we have complete cooperation from nearly every sovereign nation. So our being here is not just in the interest of the United States, but in the interest of every nation on the planet. Nearly every nation, Bouchard said quickly. Yes, said Brooke. Those nations excluding themselves from the global community don't want to depend on others. They consider it a sign of weakness. Bouchard glanced at Keiko and then back at Brooke. Go on, he said, folding his hands underneath his chin. Brooke continued. Our group consists of agents with exceptional skills in cyberterrorism, international intelligence activities, physical chemistry, quantum physics, and nanotechnology. It is our goal to remain in a state of awareness, both broad and aggressive to handle any unforeseeable global threat. Bouchard, showing no emotion, continued to look at Brooke to see if she had anything else to say. When she didn't, he looked at Keiko. And guess now he'll tell me why you're here. Keiko folded her arms across her chest and gazed deeply into Bouchard's eyes. We're not here to make new friends, she said to Bouchard rather roughly. We're not here to make you comfortable, and frankly, I'll give a damn if you are displeased over this intrusion. Bouchard leered at Keiko, his demeanor hardened by her bluntness. Before he could say a word, she continued, I don't care who you are, what you mean to your government, or what arrangements you have with them. Let's just for this moment forget all of that. The reality is, though I'm sure your friends in high places have never told you, that the global terrorist alert exposed a group previously invisible and in some ways still invisible to us. This group may have been planning to release a disease so horrible that it would decimated nearly the entire population on the planet. We've been diligently looking for anything that can give us more information about these people, but have come up short in so many ways. They seem to be able to cover their activities so thoroughly that even out best cyber-terrorism people can't find anything. Ending it all. Though do you find that impossible, Bouchard? In this day and age, there are always some breadcrumbs, something left behind, even some vague clue that may lead to something, but we came up with nothing. Nothing until... Keiko paused when she saw a glimmer of comprehension in Bouchard's eyes as he quickly looked to the floor. She continued, Until my men found some very strange events occurring from your complex. Someone was breaking through some rather sophisticated cyber diversions at an alarming rate, something that even the most powerful computers in several governments combined can't do. Someone, once so invisible, was becoming messy to find out something Bouchard. 
They were willing to take chances just to break through your diversions to get to you. Bouchard unconsciously wiped his forehead as Keiko's eyes bore in him. Now, Bouchard, Keiko said sternly, what is a global terrorist group with aspirations for wiping out life on the planet want with you? In the middle of some undisclosed place between Grande Prairie and the Bouchard complex, nearly 200 Sheol agents armed with assault rifles stood in a formation of several rows under Khalid's gaze. He silently walked between the rows, examining each face, looking for any hints that would cause him to exclude anyone. After several minutes, he decided he was pleased with the group, so he looked at Ori and nodded. Bahaija stood several feet away from Ori, as she watched Khalid look over the troops. There were men and women from all different nationalities wearing the same serious expression on their faces as they stood at attention and prepared to give their lives for a greater cause. She dared not glance at Ari, since the man still made her extremely uncomfortable. But she was intrigued that he'd let Khalid take control of the troops. Ari was clearly higher ranked, and he seemed to have no patience for anything or anyone below him. He seemed more comfortable handling everything by himself, but he tolerated those around him since he was ordered to. Ari glanced off in the distance, where he spotted several black jeep wranglers approaching. Shifting his massive frame in anticipation of some action, he strode toward Khalid and waited impatiently for the report. Two agents from the jeeps approached Khalid and informed him of their observation of the complex. They confirmed all predetermined intelligence, but they were more worried about the unexpected arrival of helicopter that caused much commotion throughout the complex. Who are they? asked Khalid. Both men shrugged. It could be practically any government agency, one answered. But whoever they are, they were not welcome. Bouchard's security forces were aggressive. It's a good chance they're not a Canadian agency since Bouchard has strong connections in his government. Khalid observed. At this point, it really doesn't matter since there are only four of them. A few more casualties will make a difference. We will proceed with the plans as... We no longer need you and the female as distractions, said Ari abruptly. The forces within the complex are already distracted by the unexpected arrival of the four. Khalid hesitated before continuing. He'd been about to mention that he and Bahija were going to try to enter the complex as a distressed, married couple in dire need of help. Once inside, they would take the opportunity to cause a distraction, allowing the Sheol forces to make a surprise attack. But that obviously didn't matter to Ari anymore. As you wish, Khalid said. What should we do to assist in the attack? Just stay out of the way. Stay here and wait for me to contact you. You're no longer needed, said Ari without looking at him. Wondering if he should argue that either Agent Brown or the man he knew as Vincent should make the decision. Khalid decided to remain silent. Even though Vincent had put him in charge, he knew it was better not to argue a direct order from one of his superiors. Ari stepped toward the two Sheol agents from the jeep and looked directly into the sun for a long, uneasy moment. The others have started their distraction. We leave now to attack the butchered complex while there is still much confusion. Ari then glanced at Khalid. Do not interfere. Khalid bowed and retreated to where Bahija stood. He motioned for her not to say a word as they watched the agents gather their equipment and enter their vehicles. Ari stood in front of the vehicles and motioned for them to move forward. To everyone's surprise, Ari started running with unnatural speed leaving the vehicles struggling to keep up with him on the rough terrain. When they disappeared into the distance, Bahija mumbled something inaudible. What? asked Khalid. 
unable to understand her as his eyes struggled to comprehend what he'd just seen. What kind of men are they? She repeated a bit louder. Bahaija, I have no idea. Bouchard looked between Keiko and Brooke. He was about to say something, but remained silent. Damn it, Bouchard, shouted Keiko. This isn't a game. These people mean business. You think they're going to wait around quietly while you figure all of this out? They nearly wiped out the whole planet before, for God knows why. If you have anything, anything at all, you gotta let us in. You can't do this alone without governmental help. It's not a call, he mumbled, staring right at Keiko. Brooke exploded. Not your call? Then get. Keiko grabbed Brooke's arm to calm her down. She had Bouchard in a state where she could get some results and didn't want to lose that edge. I don't know what arrangements or relationships you have pertaining to this matter, but if there is someone else who can make that decision, please call them now. I'm afraid this just can't wait, said Keiko more calmly than before, trying to make the decision for Bouchard more palatable. For several long seconds, Bouchard remained silent before turning to one of his security officers. Get Mr. Duquesne. The security officer barked the commands into the communicator on his right shoulder and listened for the response. Duquesne will be here in a couple of minutes, sir. Who is this Duquesne? asked Keiko. To Keiko's surprise, Bouchard's demeanor brightened. I don't know where to start. I'll leave that up to him, but his name is Sean Duquesne, and he was a history professor at Harvard University. His great-grandfather was Sir Goffrey Fairchild, professor of archaeology and history at Cambridge University in England. It's all on the internet. Look up either Sean Duquesne or Masters of Deceit. Keiko glanced at Brooke, who immediately pulled out her phone to contact Agent Jackson. Bouchard continued, It's all rather unbelievable, but if you look at the evidence, it can lead to only one thing. And what's that? Keiko asked. Bouchard shook his head. No, I can't do it justice. You have to hear it from him. Keiko tried desperately to suppress an old memory of the children of Barabbas from clouding her judgment of what Bouchard was trying to tell her. The man wasn't acting like a converted cult follower. With high regard he held for this Sean Duquesne had her worried. Brooke turned and walked away from Keiko and Bouchard as Agent Jackson started feeding her information through the phone. As he continued to talk, she became worried that they had just walked into the fledgling beginnings of yet another cult. However, the only thing that didn't fit was the sophisticated hacking of Bouchard's system by that mysterious group. When Agent Jackson finished, she hung up and walked back to Keiko. Um, excuse me, Agent Carter, she said formally, but can I have a word with you? Sure. Bouchard watched them move to the other side of the room and knew exactly what they were talking about. He wasn't an idiot. It was exactly what he'd thought only weeks ago. The problem was that, where he'd had weeks to digest all this, he doubted they could embrace what he'd come to understand in just a few minutes. While the two female agents continued talking, Sean Duquesne was ushered into the room and walked directly toward Bouchard without even noticing the FBI and Canadian agents. What's happening, Matt? Your men wouldn't tell me anything other than that you'd explain it all when I saw you, said Sean. Bouchard pointed his finger to the agents. We have guests, Sean, and they found out about the recent hack by our mysterious enemy. They also stated that this group recently failed to usher in a global genocide through some biological agent. Sean turned to the two women and glanced at the men shadowing them. Who are they? The men are Canadian agents, 
while the women are agents Carter and C. Cole Lee from the United States FBI, said Bouchard. Sean's eyes widened when he heard FBI. His experience with that agency had led to much distrust and his near death. Don't trust them, Matt, until you're sure which side they're truly from. Keiko looked at Sean and decided to get to the bottom of this. Boshi and Brooke walked back to Bouchard and Sean with serious looks. That's quite a story you have there on the internet, Mr. Duquesne, said Keiko. You can't elaborate why something so preposterous as this has the attention of these demons. You see, I have some experience with this from a man called Prophet Barabbas. Unfortunately, it led to his death along with a few hundred of his followers. So you would have to excuse me if I'm not as impressionable as Mr. Bouchard in believing your story. Sean looked at the woman and saw something deep and painful within her, but he couldn't put a finger on it. Until he could get a better idea who and what this woman was, he was going to play it cautiously. Well, you're here because you do believe in something credible or you wouldn't have gotten assistance from the Canadian government. So let's focus on that first, if you don't mind. Brooke glanced at Keiko to see how she would respond. This guy is good, she thought. Keiko folded her arms across her chest. Fine, that's why we're here. What's so important about Mr. Bouchard that a global terrorist group would be willing to expose themselves from well-hidden activities to crack several sophisticated program diversions at an unbelievable speed? They're trying to find us, said Sean without hesitation. The two Canadian agents crept in to better hear the interaction. It seemed as though Duquesne was going to reveal the truth behind the entire situation. Keiko waited for more, but nothing else came. That's it. Yes. You mean to tell me that a global terrorist group previously invisible to the greatest intelligence agencies on Earth revealed a glimmer of their existence just to find you? Asked Keiko in disbelief. She could tell that the man wasn't lying, but he wasn't being forthcoming either. Yes. Okay. Keiko took a deep breath. And the reason they are looking for you is, what, exactly? To stop us from revealing information to everyone who would listen and believe that they do exist, said Sean. So, this all gravitates back to you and your beliefs, said Keiko. Everyone believes in something, Agent Carter. You believe there was a global bioterrorism plot to kill us all. Where's the proof in that? I heard nothing about that. But you believe that it existed, said Sean. There are things that are seen and unseen. There are things explicable and inexplicable. The truth is what you choose to accept and what you choose to deny. Sean's words cut deep as memories of Keiko's interactions with Pastor James started to flood her mind along with what she had recently experienced with Agent Martin. She did an excellent job at suppressing all those unexplainable feelings and carrying out her job, but at that moment, she faltered. Keiko took a step back. Shut up, she shouted at Sean. I've been down that road before with you crackpots and don't need you clouding my mind again. She blurted before realizing what had slipped from her mouth. Brooke grabbed her friend's arm and practically dragged her from everyone. What's wrong with you? She whispered. You need to get it together. Sean relaxed a bit after her outburst. There was no way Agent Carter could be one of Agent Brown's henchmen, since she definitely had some history with something that was tormenting her. He replayed her words in his mind and realized that she had said, You crackpots. She must have had a conversation with someone about something she was having problems digesting. Could it be something spiritual, he wondered, or was it something inexplicable that was tormenting her? You saw something you can't explain, didn't you? Sean shouted out to Keiko. 
Give us a minute. Brooke responded. We're here to discuss Bouchard's connection with this terrorist group, nothing else. His connection is me, Sean said without hesitation. This group you're so interested in is coming for me, my family, and our friend. And they are not human. I've seen them do extraordinary things from incredible feats of strength to warping and controlling people's minds. Matt's only fault was in wanting to know more and finally believing once the overwhelming evidence couldn't be disputed. Keiko turned around stunned. She remembered how Agent Martin hypnotized Brooke and later possessed a presence that frightened her to her core. She hadn't imagined it. She wasn't alone. There were others who had seen and experienced these things, but what did it mean? What do you mean? She said to Sean, regaining a bit of her composure. Sean looked at Brooke and realized that she wanted nothing of this conversation. She remained silent, trying to take over this investigation from Keiko if she lost her ability to lead. The best way to get all this information is through the internet since we don't have much time left. They're coming. Who's coming? Asked Keiko, already knowing the answer but wanting to hear it from Sean's lips. Those beings that have manipulated mankind since the very beginning. They've started wars, altered men's thoughts, possessed their bodies, guided governments. And they're currently possessing a global organization able to strike anyone and everything within a grasp. They are called Sheol, and they're coming here to shut me up because I've spread knowledge of their existence. We have a very talented person, codenamed Robin Hood, that can do wonders with a computer. She previously infiltrated their server and was able to download thousands of individual names from people all over the world associated with this organization. This anchored them, and as far as we can tell, that was the first time they'd been attacked with some success. So they went out of their way to find us and eventually shut us down. And that's when you came in. You witnessed this aggressive approach toward finding us. Sean finished. I've heard of Robin Hood, Brooke said softly to Keiko. What you're saying is rather too much to believe said Keiko. And wouldn't you say that a secret global terrorist group that almost destroyed all life on Earth is rather out there too? Countered Sean. Not really, Keiko said, regaining her composure by the second. I'm dealing with real people while you're talking about fallen angels. Demons. That's a big difference. A difference I don't believe in. But this Robin Hood person, I would like to talk to. All of Bouchard's security officers inexplicably grabbed their heads and removed the earpieces from their ears. The emergency lights flickered on as the electricity shut off, and there were sounds of gunfire from outside. They're here already? shouted Bouchard. He barked orders to the security in the room to take a defensive position outside the door. Brooke looked at Keiko in disbelief and seconds later withdrew her pistol. Keiko strode to Bouchard and pointed to the Canadian agents. We need the same assault weapons your forces have, do you have an armory or storage area with more? Our handheld guns may not be much help if this is who you say it is that's here," said Keiko. Bouchard quickly instructed one of his men to take one of the Canadian agents to bring back several assault weapons and more ammunition. Brooke decided to inform either Romero or Jackson of their situation, only to find her phone unresponsive. Nothing? It's dead, she said to Keiko. Keiko checked her phone and found the same result. Bouchard, explain your backup source of energy, she asked nervously. It's typical industrial-grade batteries charged by solar panels. Why? Is there anything else special about them, she asked. Well, they are specially shielded to prevent disruption from either electrical or solar storms. 
No, it couldn't be, Bouchard said in disbelief. Keiko nodded. We just got hit by an EMP. What's a EMP? asked Sean. An electromagnetic pulse, shutting down anything running on electricity that's not shielded. Bouchard answered. I, I've had back in my family. I left them all alone. Sean said, turning to the door only to find the security guard unwilling to let him pass. Matt, said Sean, confused. I can't let you go, Sean. It's too dangerous. We don't know what's going on out there, and we're already down two men in here. I can't let any more leave to escort you back, said Bouchard. Then give me a gun. I'll go back by myself. Sean, think about it. You don't know what you may be walking into. Bouchard responded. I've been through worse. My God will protect me. That may be true, answered Bouchard, but until I hear from him, you're going to stay here. Sean looked at the door again and played with the idea of rushing the man that stood between him and his family. He took a step toward the door and stopped. Every fiber of his being was screaming within him to get out and be with his family, but he remembered what he'd endured and how God had helped both him and his family through it all. What could he possibly do to change what was happening around them right now? Sean sat hard on the floor, placed his hands on his head, and started praying. The two men returned carrying two large duffel bags. Brooke grabbed two assault rifles and ammo and started loading them for both her and Keiko. The Canadian agents followed suit along with Bouchard. Brooke looked at Bouchard, who shrugged his shoulders. I know how to handle myself, said Bouchard. Keiko looked around for a quick assessment before speaking. Okay, my group is heading out to check on what's going on. I suggest you, Sean, and your security team stay here. We'll send a report back as soon as we can. But I believe from this group's initial attack with an EMP that they're well-coordinated and are slowly taking your security forces apart." Bouchard nodded without saying a word as Keiko and her team left the room. With rifles ready, they slowly made it to the front door. There were several security men there positioned around every window, a couple by the door, and a few fatally shot lying beneath the window. They motioned for Keiko's team to stay low as they approached. What's the situation? asked Keiko. Hell if I know, whispered one of the security guards. One minute, we lost communication and electricity, and the next it was a full-fledged invasion. We're in the dark in here, and we have no idea how our guys are faring out there. Are all entrances guarded? asked Brooke. Yeah, everything's covered from what I know, but we can't communicate with anyone. So who knows if there's a breach, and these guys are using some kind of silencer, the man responded. Containment, Keiko mumbled. Huh, said the man. They want us contained while they eliminate your forces outside. Then they'll deal with us, said Keiko. Brooke, check for snipers. Brooke nodded, took a hat from a dead security man, and slowly raised it to the window with the muzzle of her rifle. She moved it around to mimic head movement before bringing it down. She then repeated the same action on two other windows with the same result. Either they're not looking, not there, or can tell the difference between. Before Brooke could finish, Keiko lifted her head to the window and took a quick glance around before lowering it. What the? That was stupid K. Brooke said, angered. Containment, Keiko mumbled. Your men outside this building are dead. There are several men out there not resembling your security force on their stomachs with guns pointed in our direction. If we make any aggressive moves, they look like they'll level this place with bullets. Before anyone could respond, the sound of gunfire rang out in the distance, followed by silence. Damn it, they're slowly taking us out, 
and we're going to do nothing but wait in here, asked the man. Keiko was silent for a moment. We take a step out there, and we're dead. They obviously don't care what we do in here. Brooke glanced through the window a little bit longer than Keiko. Yup, seems like they don't care if we look out the window, she said. Brooke that was. Brooke continued before Keiko could finish. There's also a big guy with dark clothes and sunglasses outside the fence. Looks like he's sizing things up. Both Keiko and Brooke looked out of separate corners of the window to see Ari focusing on their building. They gasped in astonishment as Ari jumped over the fence with a single leap and landed with a thud just in front of his men lying on the ground. The dark assassin continued to stare at the building as if concentrating. A red glow intensified from behind his sunglasses for what seemed like an eternity before he turned his head and started walking toward another building. Keiko and Brooke lowered their heads and stared at each other in disbelief. Keiko was the first to speak. That, that fence was over 20 feet high. And those men 100 feet from it. Brooke finished. Those eyes? Did you see those eyes? Asked Keiko. Brooke nodded and shivered, just like the Terminator. What are you guys talking about? Asked the security man. Keiko shook her head. There was no maintaining her composure this time. What she had seen was inexplicably real. It wasn't a dream or some explained-away hallucination since Brooke had seen the same thing. That man was the embodiment of evil. It was so much like what she had felt with Agent Martin. It was real, all too real. Demons, mumbled Keiko. Ari looked at Bouchard's main residence and could see the faces of two women looking at him. He ignored them as he concentrated all his senses on any other presence within. Almost immediately, an imposing angel appeared before the window with a large, flaming blue sword drawn. The angel was visible only to Ari. You cannot have Sean Duquesne. He is under my protection. Ari looked at the angel. He was indeed powerful and would take time to defeat if he had, to since there were many within him. But Sean wasn't his primary target. He knew he could dispatch one minor angel since angels elsewhere were busy. If Ari had time after eliminating his primary target, he would return to remove both the angel and Sean Duquesne. The angel flexed his mighty arm in anticipation, but relaxed slightly when Ari turned his head. Wanting desperately to engage the dark assassin, the angel stood his ground, following orders to protect Sean and not to take the offensive. The angel shouted after Ari, do not return foul one. Ari paused for a second before continuing to the next closest building. Very soon, he would find his target. The sound of gunfire became sparser as Keiko and Brooke sat beneath the window in silence. No further words could express the inner turmoil they were both feeling at this moment. It was Brooke who finally verbalized everything that had recently happened to Keiko. So, Martin, um, had one of these things inside of him? She asked softly and he really did do something to me that I can't remember. I don't know, but it felt the same as that. Then out there, Keiko answered, looking at the faces of everyone hiding behind the windows and door. She saw nothing but despair. I'm so sorry I doubted you, Kay. Keiko did her best to take control of the situation. Okay, she breathed deeply. Here's what we know. Those men with their guns pointing at us are just men. I see no evidence that they're like that. Monster. Our best chances are with them. Their job is to contain while that creature walks around looking for something. She all. Brooke mumbled under her breath. 
Keiko looked at her friend and saw her distant look. Brooke, she said softly, I can't do this without you, I need you to focus. Brooke looked at Keiko and nodded, I'm with you. Keiko smiled weakly and turned to everyone else, okay, you? She pointed to one of the guards, do you have any silencers and grenades in your armory? Just silencers, the man answered. Go get them and hand them out to every person guarding an entryway in this building. Do you think you have enough? Yeah, we got enough. Never thought we needed them, though. Good, said Keiko. Tell them to visually locate their closest target. When they hear a broken window, open fire. Without hesitation, the man left. During his absence, Keiko desperately tried to focus on the task at hand by suppressing, the best she could, this new revelation about Xi'al. She focused on her weapon and envisioned herself encountering the forces outside. Focus on the now. Focus on the now. The unexplainable can be debated later, she thought. She looked at Brooke and saw her friend also mentally preparing herself. Keiko smiled at Brooke and gave her an encouraging thumb up. When the man finally returned, he explained that everyone was on board except for Mr. Bouchard and everyone in his office. Bouchard wanted to ensure the safety of Sean and himself by barricading themselves in the room until all was clear. Keiko reasoned that Bouchard knew that he and Sean might be able to handle a weapon, but weren't as skilled as everyone else. They would only be a hindrance and impede any tactical moves the group would have to make. Okay, Keiko looked at everyone before continuing. They still may be able to communicate with one another, but right now, we have the element of surprise. Keiko looked at Brooke and nodded. Brooke took a deep breath and raised her hand. Everyone tensed as they prepared themselves to act. When she lowered her hand, everyone close to a window quickly targeted an enemy with their weapon and fired. When the electricity was initially lost due to the EMP, Lisa, Nickel, and Brad cowered together in the living room. Sean was with Bouchard. All of the security forces were deployed somewhere outside and they were left alone in the house. They were even separated from Anne-Marie and Julie. A horrible feeling of isolation gripped them. Lisa tried her best to calm the kids, but had problems in suppressing her own fears. So for what seemed like an eternity, they sat closely together, listening for anything that would give them some clue of what was going on. Mom, said Brad, I want my dad. Me too, Lisa responded. Wyas, mom, asked Nicole, Wyas. Lissa looked at her daughter but found no appropriate words. They all knew very well what they were doing, why they were running, and who was chasing them. Nicole didn't want an answer to something she'd already knew. She was scared, just venting her anxiety. Drawing her children closer, Lissa tried to reassure them. Then her attention was drawn to footsteps just outside the door. The three of them tensed as they listened, hoping and praying that it was Sean. The doorknob turned, making the three tense and then it flew open with great force. Before them stood Ari, the dark assassin, eyes blazing red behind dark sunglasses. Brad and Nickel pressed in closer to their mother as they gazed upon the huge entity. Ari looked within the house before stepping inside. He was staring directly at six powerfully built angels with blazing swords drawn, ready to attack. Quickly assessing their combined strength, he realized he could defeat them all, but with injury to himself. He had to be sure the house contained what he was looking for first. Focusing even further within the house, he sensed no other angelic beings. These humans were the only ones here, but were the journals here. You will not take one step further in this house, foul thing, said the angels in unison. 
Ari looked at the Duquesnes and desperately wanted to make them pay for all of the problems they had caused Xiao. To eliminate every single one of them would be the easiest and most efficient way to finally resolve this mess, but he had his detestable orders and would follow them. Where are the journals? He asked with venomous contempt. The Duquesnes shifted in fear at hearing his voice, causing the angels to lift their swords in preparation to attack. Ari pointed to Lisa. You will find us prepared this time and will not fare so well. Sir Fairchild died at my hands when he didn't answer my question. I will not hesitate to end your bloodline this day if you do not answer my question. You have no power here, Lisa managed to say, get out. Ori ignored the angels and focused on Lisa. Really? How will you not know your own Bible? How many times have your God's people been defeated and ruled by others? And don't you remember how we offered your Lord the kingdoms of this world if you would just bow down and worship us? We couldn't offer that if we didn't have the power. Ara raised his voice in horrific anger. This world and everything in it belongs to us. Now, where are the journals? When Ari took a step into the house, one of the angels looked as though he was going to charge Ari, but stopped when he heard one of the children. It's not here, it's not here. Just leave us alone, shouted Brad. Ari took a step back, wondering if he should check the house first. Doing so would cost him dearly in first dispatching the angels. He decided to leave this house for last and return, if he didn't find the books in the other ones. If he had to return, he would make sure to destroy any human or angel in his way. If you were lying, you'll be the first to die, he said to Brad as he turned and left. Brad grabbed his mother even tighter. It's all right, said Lisa. God's looking out for all of us. No harm will come to us. Julie was working feverishly on her computer, barely hearing Anne Mary next to her praying when the lights flickered and went out. She looked at her computer, relieved to see that the loss in power hadn't affected what she was doing. Everything she worked with was on backup power and shielded from any electrical shock. She went back of her work despite understanding that something was amiss. She needed to finish up quickly. When she realized Anne-Marie wasn't praying, she glanced in her direction to see her friend slumped in a chair. Almost done, she said to Anne-Marie. When Anne-Marie didn't respond, Julie turned and looked at her friend. Anne-Marie looked pale and was breathing irregularly. Julie jumped out of her chair and ran toward Anne-Marie. What's wrong? You okay? Anne-Marie slowly placed her hand on her chest. Pacemaker, she managed to mumble. Julie hopelessly looked at her friend, not knowing what to do. What's wrong with it? She asked desperately. Stop working when? Lights. Went. Out, Anne-Marie said slowly. Searching frantically for answers, Julie finally concluded the only thing that could affect Anne-Marie's pacemaker and the electricity was an EMP. Torn between wanting to help Anne-Marie and finishing her work, Julie forced herself back into her chair. Her hands flew over the keyboard as she finally understood that they were out of time. She always here. Tears began to flow as she realized that she was leaving her friend to die. Anne-Marie pointed past Julie. Angel, she said. Julie whirled to see a woman dressed in a white dress suit behind her. She kneeled next to Anne-Marie, placed a hand on Anne-Marie's forehead, and smiled. You have done well, Anne-Marie Fairchild Duquesne. God is well pleased with you, the angel said, and turned to Julie. You must finish what you started before it is too late. I will comfort Anne-Marie before she goes home. What? What? Home? You can't mean. 
The tears flowed faster down Julie's face as the weight of Anne-Marie's condition finally hit her. Heal her. Make her better. She pleaded. It is her time, said the angel, still stroking Anne-Marie's forehead and never once losing eye contact with Anne-Marie. No, you can't. Everyone has a time at which their walk on this plane is over and their eternal life begins. It's not a time of sorrow, but a time of happiness. Anne-Marie's struggles will be over. Forgetting about her important task, Julie continued to sob as she watched the angel comfort her friend. After a few seconds, the angel addressed Julie again. You must really get back to work now. You're almost finished and almost out of time, said the angel. I can't. Anne-Marie. Julie said Anne-Marie softly. So, beautiful. I'll be okay. They say it's important you finish, Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie focused on Julie briefly, please. The finish. Julie looked at the small chest that Anne-Marie had dug up so long ago. Inside were the journals of Sir Godfrey Fairchild, the instruments of so much pain, misery, and revelation. The books had brought the light of understanding to so many through the sacrifices of a few. As she returned to her computer and started on the computer code she'd worked so hard on, she wondered how all of this would end. The angel closed her eyes, kissed Anne-Marie's forehead, and stood. She walked over to Julie and placed a hand on her shoulder. Anne-Marie is with her father now, said the angel. Julie didn't stop typing as the tears threatened to blur her vision. Okay, she said, wiping her eyes. Neither said another word until Julie stopped typing. Wiping her eyes of tears again, she clicked the execute button on the screen. It's done, said Julie as she turned to Anne-Marie and looked at her peaceful face. She does look happier than I ever saw her. The angel remained quiet as she continued to rub Julie's shoulder. Julie remembered how the angel had comforted Anne-Marie and quickly looked at the angel. No, me? Julie asked. The angel placed both hands on Julie's face. Julie Targus, God is extremely pleased with no, it can't be. Julie interrupted. What did I do to deserve this? I still have so much I want to do. I don't accept it. Ignoring Julie's outburst, the angel continued. He is pleased with what you have done. From helping those long ago that could not afford medical care to furthering the cause of the Duquesnes, you have helped spread truth in a way that Sir Goffrey Fairchild or Sean Duquesne would have never imagined. But I can do more. I'm not finished, Julie pleaded. Oh, you have. What you have just finished today on this computer is. First, you can't heal Anne-Marie, and now you're telling me I'm going to die too. It's just too much to take in. I can't believe God is allowing this to happen. Julie ranted as tears flowed yet again. Everyone has a time at which their walk on this plane is over and their eternal life begins. It's not a time of sorrow, but a time of happiness. Julie Targus, your struggles will be over. Why? Julie asked weakly. I am here to comfort you in your transition. As for why, that will be made perfectly clear by the father, said the angel. Julie heard a loud crash downstairs, as if the door had been torn off its hinges and thrown across the living room. Within seconds, the door to the computer room was shattered, revealing Henri. His flaming eyes first focused on the small chest, the angel, Anne-Marie, and finally Julie. Time to die, he said, 